inside out. I think as we talk about the conversion of Saul today on the road to Damascus, that this was perhaps a song that, uh, that he could have sung, uh, that he could have related to. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's spring. You can tell that because it was snowed this week. And uh, there were, you were also running around in shirt sleeves this week, so uh, that, that means it's spring. Uh, if it's spring, it means it's garden time. And so um, there it's time to plant, and uh, we, we've got that down here with the community garden. And uh, we've had quite a good response to our advertising this year, and I think we're close to filling up the, the garden. I don't think we, we have three empty spots that we could build three new beds. I don't think we're quite there yet, but we're very close uh, and have more community members than we have done the last couple of years. I like spring. I like seeing the, the flowers uh, coming up. Um, the what are those little ones that pop up in the grass? I keep forgetting their name. They've got a purple or white. Someone knows what they are. They Sorry? Crocus, that's it. They're the first thing. And uh, I know Sophie gets so excited when we start seeing crocus in the lawn. And uh, it's like, it's spring, winter's over. And then the daffodils are blooming. And next are the tulips. And uh, next are the squirrels eating the tulips. And the petals laying on the ground. And my heart breaking. You know, so it, it's like this rite of spring as we go from one to the other, as we, we move uh, through these different flowers, different plants, the leaves get their trees, uh, trees get their leaves. I guess the leaves get their trees. Um, <coughs> but one of the things about spring is that you never know what's going to happen. Uh, I have some little plants near my garage and uh, they they flower quite nicely in the summer nothing big or fancy but they've been there for a long time they're pretty reliable but I think this year one of them isn't going to it looks like it's lost quite a bit of its foliage and uh, isn't going to be as big as it and thick as it has been in previous years I didn't know that was going to happen other times out here we'll plant, and you know that if you plant carrots to expect carrots, and if you plant peas or beans to expect peas or beans, but you can never be quite sure whether that's a good packet of seeds that you've planted. You can't ever be quite sure, whatever it is that you put in the ground, how it's going to come up. And then even when it does come up, you can't ever be quite sure if the snails are going to get it before you do, or the deer are going to jump the fence, or somebody else is going to take a fancy to it, you just never know what's going to come. The spring is this time of dirt. I, I got told by a farmer, it's soil. Dirt is what you get on your hands. Soil is what you plant your, your crops in. You never, but spring is soil. And then eventually you hope for growth, and eventually for a harvest. But we're a long way from harvest at the moment. I love that the parables of Jesus so often feature seeds 
and plants and growing. It's something that I think all of us can relate to. Whether we live in the city or in the country, we're familiar with the concept of seeds and plants. And, and Jesus uses these in a variety of ways, these stories and illustrations. Today I'm thinking of Matthew chapter 13. I don't have any slides, so you'll have to follow along in your Bible if you, you wish to do so. And in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells this story of a farmer who plants a field, presumably of wheat, some sort of grain. And then one night, an enemy comes along and plants weeds. And the servants go to the farmer and they say, what are we to do? Are we going to go out and pluck up all the, all the weeds? The farmer says, no, we, do, we can't do that. Like, initially, they all just look like grass. How are you going to know which one is which? You're just going to have to let it grow. And later on, come the harvest time, some of the plants will have grain on their head, and some will have some other seed that, that is, demonstrates that it's the weed. That's kind of the definition of the weed. It won't be usable. But at the beginning of the story, you can't tell. You can't tell who is who. And so as we've been traveling through Acts, and we're looking at the beginnings of the church. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 tells us to begin where? In Jerusalem. And from there move to Judea. And from Judea to, and from Samaria to the Ends of the earth, yeah. And at each stop along the way, you never really know what's, how it's going to end. When Philip goes to Samaria, he doesn't know how the Samaritans are going to receive him. He's going into enemy territory, literally. When, and, and then he runs into Simon, the magician, the, and, and it seems like, man, all this work's come to, to nothing. He, now he just wants to buy the Holy Spirit. Like, this is not the way it's supposed to go. And, and next he goes to the desert and he sees this Ethiopian eunuch, someone in a class and of influence and social status much higher than himself from another country, another culture, a eunuch. It's like, what am I doing here? What can I do? What, what can this, what can come of this? And we saw last week how the church in Ethiopia exists for thousands of years, perhaps because of those first efforts at that meeting. And then today we encounter Saul. Now, the last time we saw Saul, he was standing around holding coats while Stephen was being stoned. And you say, what kind of seed is Saul? How can anything good come from him? Because I, I actually misspoke. I said that was the last time, but it wasn't the last time. That was the first time. The last time we saw Saul was in chapter 8. In chapter 8, verse 3, 
We're told there, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. I mean, that isn't any kind of seed. This is more the story of the soils. This is rocky soil. And, and the birds of the air are going to come down and they're going to eat that up. And that's what should happen to Saul. He should be eaten up and devoured for what he's doing to the church, right? And I think that just shows how poor our judgment can be at times. In Acts chapter 26, there's another account from Paul's own lips of his conversion. And, and he gives us a couple of extra details in, in chapter 26. We're told there that Saul would take, capture these Christians, and he didn't just put them in prison. Okay. But he attempted to have the Christians blaspheme. So his goal in putting them in prison, perhaps in torturing them, was to have them blaspheme their faith to deny, to recant their faith in Jesus. And then there were times, perhaps, if, if they wouldn't, that they were executed. And Saul says that he was one of, one of those there to cast his vote for their execution, for their death, for, as he would have perceived it, their destruction of Judaism. He was a zealous, violent, and intimidating person. And so as we read a little earlier, Jesus, Saul was on the way to Damascus. When he gets there, he's going to take captive, take prisoner some more Christian leaders. See, Paul was a big thinker. He thought globally, big picture. We see that in his life as a Christian. We see it now. But he wasn't happy to purify Jerusalem. He's like, no, we have to get rid of this scourge, this cancer that is Christianity. And so he goes to Damascus, up in the north, in modern-day Syria. And he's, he wants to bring those Christians from Damascus back to Jerusalem. And we just saw what he wants to do when he gets them to Jerusalem. He doesn't just want to put them in jail for six months. He wants to make their life misery until they deny their faith, return to Judaism, and perhaps if they don't, to execute them. And on the way, he has this vision, this encounter with a voice and a light. And I think he sees a person. And the person says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I'd really like to know the tone of voice that was used. Saul, Saul, why? Why do you persecute me? Saul says, I don't even know who you are. He says, I'm Jesus. I am Jesus who you are. And so I think it says an aside here, an important aside that we need to notice that even on the throne of heaven, Jesus experiences the pain of his people. 
that Jesus is one with his people. And if we think about it, that indwelling of the Holy Spirit and that intercession at God's throne, you see how that works here, that the, the church, the Christians is the body of Christ. That the Holy Spirit is indwelling in our body when our body experiences pain and hurt and disappointments. The Holy Spirit is not somehow detached from that, but experiences that with us and communicates it with Jesus on the throne. And so as Saul is persecuting the Christians in the church, he's persecuting Jesus himself. I think of Matthew 25, verses 40 and 45. And there Jesus talking about sheep and goats. And he says, Whatever you do for one of the least of these, brothers and sisters, the poor, the imprisoned, the, those who are being treated unjustly, whatever you do for them, he says, you do for me. He takes it personally. When we mistreat those who are disadvantaged outside the church, when we ourselves are mistreated or we mistreat each other within the church, Jesus takes it personally. And so that could be both a comfort and a little bit scary, depending on which side of that equation we're on. And so in our story, as we, we read down through here, there are two people that are at the center of this story. One is Saul. He's traveling, as I've mentioned, to persecute But then something happens on the way. And it's really interesting that he refers to the church as the way. That was the name that this first church had. The way to God, the way of God. But Saul, on his way to the way, really encounters the way, the truth, and the life in the person of Jesus. And, and he doesn't just encounter Jesus as he was last time he was seen before his death. He encounters the resurrected Christ, the resurrected Jesus. And, and just as we talked about at Easter, the, the, the centrality of the resurrection to the whole Christian faith. So we see the transformation that the resurrected Jesus brings to the life of Saul. Saul is going out of his way to kill Christians. And then he encounters the Christ who's been killed but is alive. That changes things. That doesn't just change things a little bit. That doesn't just make you go, oh, I wonder if I was right. It, it changes things dramatically to encounter the resurrected Christ. Life and the world suddenly look very different. And Saul turns his life around and seeks to follow Jesus. And so he comes to Damascus to persecute the Christians. He leaves Damascus persecuted as a Christian. Because, not because he was won over by arguments, 
not because you know there was a great teacher that he listened to, but because he encountered Jesus, the risen Jesus. And then we come down here to Ananias. His story, if you're just following along a little in your in the chapter, starts in verse 10. And Ananias also encounters the risen Christ. And Jesus says to him, Ananias, I have a job for you. Ananias says, Lord, I, I don't really like that job. Sounds a little bit like Moses, a little bit like Isaiah, Jeremiah. This tradition of people God calls not wanting to do what God tells them to do. It's like, are you sure? He says, I've heard about this guy, Jesus. Maybe you didn't get the memo. This guy is coming to Damascus because he wants to kill us. He's come here, verse 14 says, with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. And so Ananias wants to avoid Saul. If Ananias, we don't really know anything about him, if he was a leader in the church, he was probably one of the prime targets that Saul was coming to uh, arrest. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That, that last line kind of gets me. It's like, Jesus says, don't worry, i got something lined up for him. <laughs> like, yeah, he wants to persecute and make your life miserable, but I've got something lined up for him. But it's the first part that I think is the most important. That God has plans for Saul. Not just plans to punish and make him miserable, but plans to use him. And so when when Ananias encounters Christ, when he gets this concept of how Christ sees Saul and sees the world and sees what's possible, Ananias also has a change of heart. And rather than running from Saul, he now goes to Saul. And, and to see how complete, complete this is, He's not like Moses who was forever saying, oh, I can't speak, I need someone else to speak for me. Ananias buys in. And, and obviously, he has received more information than is recorded here for us. But he gets there and he says, Brother Saul. And I don't think we can overestimate the importance of that greeting. Because Saul... They have not talked. Ananias has not talked with Saul at this point, if we're, as it's recorded. All he's been told is that God has plans for Saul. And, and I think he comes down and he says, um, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. Now there's nothing up ahead that says where, where in his vision that that information was given to Ananias. So we know Ananias has more backstory than is contained here. But nonetheless, he doesn't need to see for himself. He doesn't need to test him. Think of Joseph and his brothers and the testing that he put them through. Ananias doesn't need to test Saul. 
Ananias goes to heaven because God told him to go to him. He says, Brother Saul. He hasn't received the Holy Spirit. He hasn't been baptized. He's still blind. He hasn't told Ananias that he's had a change of heart. He wants to hug him instead of arrest him. But God's word is good enough for Ananias. And so he says, Brother Saul. And when he does that, then immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up. He was baptized. He received the Holy Spirit, we're told. And he'd had three days of fasting. And after eating some food, he regained his strength. There's a lot of different points and applications through this passage. But the one that I want to extract from it is just how difficult it is for us to tell good seed from bad seed. Could you tell that Ananias was going to do what he was told? I mean, he was a believer, but does that mean that he would still go to Saul? I, I want to just jump down because compare Ananias' reaction to in verse uh, 26. When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. You see, don't think that just because Ananias was a believer that he was bound to love Saul and embrace him and accept him. Because you got the, the mother church in Jerusalem that when this same person shows up, they're like, whoa, no. No. We don't trust him. He is undercover. He's seeking to infiltrate the church and we're going to wake up one morning with swords at our throats. And it took another person, Barnabas, in verse 27, to take Saul, bring him to the apostles, tell them how on his journey he'd seen the Lord, the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas became Saul's advocate in helping him integrate into the church in Jerusalem to find his place of belonging. And so we, we actually have three people, if we keep on reading all the way through there. We have Saul, we have Ananias, and we have Barnabas. They behave very differently. They all have important roles. And you can't tell at the outset who the people are going to be. So are you planting? What are you doing? Are you planting? Are you watering? Are you investing in other people? Perhaps you're an Ananias. You're just the right person at the right place at the right time. And you're able to say the right thing. And maybe it's by accident. Maybe you don't even know what you've said. Maybe Can you think of someone in your life that said something to you? And perhaps they never had any idea how significant those words were at that time. Now, I imagine for Ananias this was a significant moment in his life to get a voice from you know, a conversation with Jesus. And then to go and meet Saul, like he would have talked about this for years. 
But I wonder if he really knew when he went there and he said, Brother Saul, how important that was. If, if he really knew when he baptized Saul, the impact it would make on the church and on the world. I don't think so. Saul was what? A week, a month, a short period of time there in Damascus. Spent several days in verse 19. And then he began to preach. And, uh, oh, verse 23, after many days had gone by. So it could have been a month, it could have been two months. But Saul was, we've had people come to our church for a couple of months, six months, a year. And you probably can't remember all their names if you've been here any length of time. And so Saul was just another person passing through the church, a significant person, a notable person who became a leader. But Ananias' words in that moment as he baptized him may not have seemed all that special. I know we, many of us have had people tell us things that aren't all that special to them that were special to us. And sometimes we get to return that favor. But, but we need to have that relationship with God in the beginning. We can't point people to God by accident if we're not in contact with God ourselves. Or I wonder, are you a, more of a Barnabas? Rather than that short one-time encounter where you, you, you have an opportunity just to speak God into somebody's life, perhaps you're uh, willing to invest in a new Christian. You see somebody at the church or in a growth group or that you, you just know them, they may attend another church, but, but you recognize that they're in a place in their life where they just need somebody to walk with them. And you're saying, I'm willing to do that. I've done that. I can look back over my life and there was this person and that person and that person. And, and it was still just for a season, but it was for six months or a year or a couple of years. And, and it was so encouraging to me to see them grow in their relationship with Christ. And it was worth the time and the effort and the energy that I put in to them. And because the whole church won't do that. Sometimes we think, oh, other people do it. The whole church won't do that. There are many times somebody new comes to the church. And our social network is already full. I can't, don't have space in my life to add another person. And, and, or, or maybe they're a little different, a little strange. I'm not sure if I want to spend much time with them. But, but the church needs people like Barnabas to come alongside them and say, whatever your struggle is as you come to the church, we want you to belong to us. And I'm going, it's going to be my job, my task to help you find your place in the church, in God's kingdom. Not just as a place to come and sit and have good conversations, but as a place to serve. You see, Saul was immediately given opportunities to preach and teach and to share his story and his knowledge of Scripture. And, and I think perhaps the Holy Spirit was working in him in a very powerful way that, that most new converts... Uh, don't experience. But nonetheless, he wasn't just told to sit and uh, to come on Sunday, find a comfortable seat and do that for six months and, and then we'll find something for you to do. Barnabas said, no, come with me. We'll put you to work. 
because there's work in God's garden. And maybe your soul, maybe you're on fire, maybe, maybe there's something within you that says, I want to change the world for God. Because the church needs souls. The church needs these people that are filled with enthusiasm, that wear out the rest of the church, that, that don't seem like they're able to stay in one place very long because they, they're just thinking bigger than, than everyone else is thinking. They've got places to go, people to see, and stories to tell. And I wonder if that's you. Because the church needs those people now more than ever, or as much as ever. And so I, I have two takeaways. I guess the first takeaway is just that we can't tell on the front end who people are. And so when we allow those first impressions to impact the way we interact with people, we do God, we do Jesus a disservice. You see, we, we, we do that with people outside the church, don't we? Whether it be Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch, there are people outside the church that we decide from first impressions are not going to be interested in Jesus. And we make the decision for them. And they never find their way into the kingdom of God, perhaps. But then there are but, but God has, does have, I mean, through our efforts, they never find their way into the kingdom of God. But, but God, the, the message is that God has a place for them in his kingdom. And that God, we saw last week, will run after them. Or here will appear the soul. He'll get them into his kingdom. And then the other is that not only is there a place for people outside the kingdom, inside the kingdom. But when you're in, there's also a place for you. There's a work for you, a task for you, a role for you to carry out, a place to belong. And so Saul not only was an unlikely person outside, when he came inside, God had something for him to do. The good news is that God doesn't call us all to be the same person at the same time. Okay? God doesn't design the church to be filled with Ananiases or with Barnabases or with Saul's. That there is a place for each of them. And perhaps at different points in our lives, we identify with different, different roles, different responsibilities. We're not just locked into being one thing forever. And so my, my, my question for you today it's just to ask, where do you fit in God's garden? What role does God have for you to do? Are you the seed struggling to grow that needs to be watered? That was Saul at the beginning. Think about it. If Saul had never encountered Ananias, never encountered Barnabas, I think God would have arranged things. But just those people are such a play such pivotal roles in Saul becoming Paul who wrote so much of the Bible and spread the church and planted so many churches throughout the Roman Empire. But he started out as a seedling. And with all seedlings, it's either the snail's going to get it or is it going to bear fruit? And it's the attentive gardener that cares for it and looks after it. So are you the seed, seedling? Are you the gardener? Where are you at at the moment? Are you the Ananias or the Barnabas? 
the souls? Are you the church in Jerusalem? Kind of steps back. Says we're not sure what to do with this thing. We're not sure how to handle this. We'd rather not touch it. I hope that's not who Lawson Road is. I hope that's not who who you are. I think there's some really positive role models here. And God has a place for all of us. A place for everyone to belong and a role for everyone to fulfill. What's yours?